Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Uh, are we okay for noise, by the way? It's Friday night. Yeah. It's Friday night. Friday night. It's Friday night. We should do some singing. We could do that some singing. That was so funny the other night. It was that great. I know. Just to sing. And, and what did we say? We sang. Still uh, my guitar. That's right. And we She was great. And we sang. I love to sing. In June of this year, completely unsure about what to do with Damien Hirst's beautiful studio space next to the River Cafe, which he was giving to us for the memorial for Richard Rogers, my husband, a friend, Jonah Freud, introduced me to S. Devlin by text. A few hours later, I found myself talking to her while she put her child to bed at midnight. S., the designer of the set for Beyoncé's concert, the West End production of The Crucible, the fashion show for Yves Saint Laurent, had recently finished her radical book, An Atlas of S. Devlin. At the end of the conversation, she said, I'll tell you what, Ruthie, I'm going to Lisbon tomorrow morning. Why don't I stop over on the way to the airport? Is 8 o'clock okay? Of course, yes, I said, already exhausted. She arrived at eight on the dot. We had a look at the space. She told me what to do and got straight into a taxi to make the flight. This was S, spontaneous, generous, positive, creative, funny, and very smart. As I write this, S is in the restaurant talking to Charles Pullen, our manager, about what makes the River Cafe a set, a place that is active and calm, dark and light, noisy and quiet at different times of the day. When Ed comes back from all this, we'll talk about food, theater, space, books, family, and cooking. And most of all, we will talk about friendship and we will talk about love. Thank you, S. Oh, so beautiful. <laughs> Don't change a word. So, you know the drills, and we ask you to choose from all the recipes of all the books in the last 12 cookbooks. So I'd like to ask you why you chose this recipe for cannellini bean soup. Well, this is from the first book. And, of course, my first encounter when the River Cafe first was open, when I was first able to come, which took a while to get my yes. table. And then when the book came out, and we were fans. So I wanted to remember that moment. you and... Well, yeah. back then, it was probably me and friends. It was yeah. probably before I met my husband, oh, Jack. Was. But my husband, Jack, is an extraordinary cook. He makes this cannellini bean soup. And he makes it very specifically with a piece of toast in the bottom. And he did teach me how to make it. Mm -hmm. So I have made it. Okay. But more often, I have eaten it and when I didn't love. make it. <laughs> yeah, I ate the love of it rather <laughs> than <laughs> making it. Shall okay, I read it? Read the recipe. Cannellini bean soup. Serve six. 250 grams cooked cannellini beans. A handful of fresh sage leaves. Two to three garlic cloves peeled and chopped. Three tablespoons of olive oil. A bunch of fresh flat leaf parsley chopped. Extra virgin olive oil. 
In a large saucepan, cook the garlic in the olive oil until soft but not brown. Add the parsley, then add beans and stir. Put three quarters of the bean mixture into a food processor with some reserved cooking liquid. Pulse briefly, you do not want to puree. Add more of the cooking liquid if necessary, but the soup should be thick. Return to the saucepan and season. Reheat. If too thick, add more cooking liquid. Serve with generous amount of extra virgin olive oil. And perhaps some toast. And I would, <laughs> I if like, I were Jack, I would I be toasting something in the bottom. So uh, you have that gorgeous I agree. toast and beans and oil. Yeah, that's what we love. Three, almost three ingredients, isn't it? You know, simplicity, which I guess is perhaps the way you work. It is. And also, I don't eat meat. So I'm, and I, as you mentioned, I use quite a lot of energy. Yeah. So I have to be quite careful to make sure I get a lot of protein without eating meat. And the beans are amazing for that as well. So going back to the beginning, tell me about growing up in the Devlin household. Where were you born? I was born in Kingston Hospital in Kingston upon Thames, not too far from here. Proper suburbia. Yeah, close. Proper suburbia in the west, western suburbs of London. And then my parents went on a romantic weekend break to Rye in East Sussex. Mm -hmm. And they bought a house on a whim on a cobbled street called Mermaid Street, which used to descend into the sea. And the house had been lived in by Conrad Aiken, the poet, and his daughter, Joan Aiken, the author. So in my mind, the house spoke. There was a model city, model town of Rye, next to the house and we used to visit it every weekend because my mother and father were so excited to invite their friends to see the place they loved so they would take them to the model which was a sonnet lumiere and it told stories so each house told a story including my house so I was only six years old so in my head something made me think that objects could Pets speak stories houses could speak the way that I think beans mm, speak yeah. and food speaks. So that was me growing up and my mother was a teacher. What did she do? She taught special needs children, dyslexic children at that time. She had taught lots of things but she was teaching dyslexic kids and my dad was a journalist specializing in education. They they were both fascinated with education actually. Yeah. But my mom prepared all the food. My dad could make scrambled eggs on toast. That was really it. I'm worried that I might be like my father was, slightly known for only cooking one thing. Okay. Because I don't cook very much. That's fine. What, do you, what is your one thing? Well, I do make cheese and tomatoes on toast mm. quite well, if it's nice. good toast. Um, and I sometimes put red pepper. I'm trying to mm. use the vegan cheese. Mm. Oh, it's <laughs> but, like, yeah. um, Are you vegan or vegetarian? No, I'm vegetarian, but I'm just trying to be as smart as possible with the ingredients. But, yeah, my mum was in the kitchen. She was trying to manage everything. There were four kids. Four, and she taught all day and then yeah. came home and cooked for you. Yeah. Would you sit down, all of you, to dinner yeah. every yeah. night? Yeah, but it was quite a lot of, you know, back then in the 80s and late 70s, quite a lot of potato waffles mm -hmm. out of the freezer, whatever she had time for. Then she got a slow cooker and she realized that she, before she went to work, she could put all the ingredients, big meaty stews, mm -hmm. she, could put, she would do a white one or a brown one and she'd put all the ingredients, the chicken or whatever it was, in there in the morning Wow. She'd go out, do her whole day at teaching, and then we, we would come home from school. The idea was that the big stew would be there for us to eat. And that worked? That well, no, because we like the potato uh, waffles. Oh, I see. <laughs> so we would just go to the freezer and get my poor mum. So she gave up after that a bit. 
So your father would come back. Would he work in London or where did he, he work as a journalist? Yeah, we only saw him at the weekend oh, right. because he would stay up in London. To get to Rye at the time yeah. was quite a trek. Yeah, yeah. So he would come back at the weekends. So my mum was really holding the fort and we, we all did a lot of things. There was music lessons, orchestra. We had a little yellow Citroen Diane that we had to park facing downhill on Mermaid Street. Otherwise it wouldn't start if it was facing uphill. Because then if it if it didn't start, you, you could, could just, just roll, roll it down. down. Yeah. She would put hot water bottles on it in the winter to stop the points freezing. She had a little plastic, like, a, like a, a bonnet that you put on to stop your hair getting wet in the shower. She put one of those over the whole car, a big bonnet to stop it getting wet. But we would go to the beach after school in the summer every day to Camber Sands or to Winchelsea. And we would, my food memory of that yeah, time that? was sitting, usually crappy weather, in the wind and unwrapping foil, crusty little pastries, and then the sand, the grit of the sand would get in them. And these, she would make these little pastry chicken pies. So I remember the chicken and the sand. They were kind of tasty with a bit of sand in them. Amazing. So you grew up in this house with four children. Where are you in the list of kids? I'm number two. Number two. And the mother who worked, a father who was absent, and you had a meal every night that you would sit around the table and would you all talk about what you'd done during the day or would it be just kind of eat and then do the homework? What was was life like? Noisy. Very noisy Mm -hmm. and kind of my brothers went to boarding school for a while. I think it was all too much probably for my Mm -hmm. mom to manage four kids all at once. So they went off for a bit and they would come back in the holidays and it was very, very noisy Mm -hmm. and there were friends over. And yeah, it was food and noise and talking. And and at lunch, would you take your lunch to school? Or did you get lunch there? Do you remember l- school l- food? School food, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. School food was horrible. Rice puddings that were all skinny and you had to eat it all. It was a local school called Frida Cardam in Rye, a primary school. And then we moved to Kent to go to a school called Cranbrook School, which was a grammar school. They had a little cafeteria that you would choose your food but we just did eat the potato waffles again back to the potato yeah, waffles I'm afraid so I'm afraid it's such I a shame because I've never seen a potato waffle if you eat- <laughs> I guess I have to go through the British education the home system have you had a potato waffle yeah okay I mean in fairness to my mum the fact that you know we were annoying children who liked processed food was not her fault she's a fantastic cook she makes great big themed I mean she would make ridiculously crazy birthday cakes Theatrical, perhaps? Extraordinarily <laughs> theatrical. I mean, my mum is a great artist, as is my dad. They didn't pursue art as yeah. a career, but all of our birthdays were always, it would be a, a themed mermaid cake with mermaid biscuits. I, I am I'm pretty terrible because I do, when I eat a meal, yeah. and I've been served the most beautiful meals yeah. in my life by my husband and other, but I tend to eat the conversation, Yeah, the food tastes of the thought. Mm, that's fine. That's a story. That's a story of food. And, and I think food can be a story. And I think, you know, what you eat is so much, obviously, more than what's going in your mouth. And the, the lighting, I am obsessed with what the light is. I can't, mm. if I walk into a restaurant, the light is wrong, I will probably go up to the person mm. and say, can I just dim the switch here? So what is the lighting that you like in a restaurant? Low. Low. Or outside and being in the, like just now, we were yeah. sitting outside at your beautiful piazza. Yeah. So either natural light or the light of the fire. Yeah. By the fire, the food by a fire. Yeah. I'm Charles Pullen, Executive Director of the River Cafe, and we are sitting on uh, Table 106 on the terrace outside. 
on a Friday afternoon, and I'm about to talk with Ez Devlin. Um, very excitingly, we want to get her take on the feel and the energy and the design of the River Cafe. So rather than one of her sets that we do all over the world, it'd be rather interesting just for us to hear what your take is on the space that we use. As people arrive through the front door, their first view as they look left down the length of the very long dining room is the, is the big pink wood oven and the, the fire in there flickering away, which has a wonderful purpose of shrinking the room in a way and making it feel cosy and make it feel much more intimate, despite the fact it is a very long, large dining room. It's such a, such a sort of hackneyed old reference, the, the fact that there is so much in common with the theatre and the restaurant world. But it's a truism because there are so many parallels with how you gear up, you rehearse, you audition, but then there's the energy that's just before service, just before the curtain's up, and then you, you all jump into your roles. And so we, we've always talked about the staff and the food and all that side of things, but from your point of view, it might be interesting to hear how the kind of design of the dining room itself comes into play. I think the comparison between the performative aspects of the delivery of food and the physical aspects of being backstage and front stage are, are clear. I don't find them hackneyed, I think they're fascinating. When I was here last time, it was an evening, the weather was a bit like this, maybe not so sunny, but we all gathered in bright clothes in honour of Richard's love of bright colours, all around the banks of this piazza. And of course, the river. It's called the River Cafe for a reason. We are adjacent to this great planetary force that runs through our city. So for me, those fundamental forces of the fire in the bright crimson furnace yeah. and the river that's here, this green piazza of grass that's outside, the vivid colour of the doors everywhere in the toilets, this beautiful red-orange fluorescent colour. Richard's colours, exactly. Right? So I think all of those energies are felt even when you're inside. We're sitting outside now, but I believe they're felt inside as well. And of course the colour, the, the idea that when you eat, you're not just eating food, you're eating colour, you're eating light, because the way that light reverberates off objects to create colour, you're eating what you smell, you're eating the conversation that you might be having with someone. That's what you're eating. That's what you're, you're nourished by so much more than molecules that you need as fuel, right? Absolutely. Of course. And that's, this place has always celebrated that. And of course, what's beautiful about it, in my understanding of the etymology of this restaurant and why it's so dearly loved, is because it began as a place of work, didn't it? It yeah. began as a canteen yeah. to feed those who were working together to make buildings. The paper tablecloth here was, is absolutely was here so that Richard could get out his pens and scribble on them and design the next pompadour, whatever it might have been. And I think that's why it feels so rooted in this spot. It's here for more reasons than one might think even on the surface. Of course, now it's become this incredibly sought-after place to have some of the finest food with the finest produce, with some of the most successful and accessible and readable and beautiful cookbooks that have ever been made. But it started because a team at lunchtime needed to eat in a place where there aren't many restaurants. Yeah. And it started from, we always talk about, in any kind of work of art, what was the need? Did it need to be made? And this needed to be made, like Ruthie and Richard needed to be together. Yeah. Like, you know, their need of each other sort of resonated through all their friends and the vast kind of circle of people they've gathered around them, which I really witnessed when I was here on that memorial yeah. day.
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I understand that, that you cook for the people that you work with. Is that yeah. right? Every day? Is yeah. That, is so there? I don't cook, but I have a cook who makes meals every day. And we started that probably about seven years ago when we moved to a studio that didn't really have an easy way for people to eat. But also it was part of balancing our carbon footprint. And it seemed much more sensible if I have a, around eight to ten people in the studio every day. We make them vegetarian food. There's no food waste, there's no packaging, no one's running around getting bits of things in plastic boxes or anything. It was what something I could do. You know, we still fly. I can diminish it, but I can't completely get rid of that from my practice at the moment. But what I can do is serve everyone a really nice vegetarian Do you all eat together? Yeah, we will stop work, go around the table in my house. There's a garden there. We all sit down and we eat. We have a wonderful lady called Chaya who's cooking for us at the moment. We had Antonia until she had to leave. But that's really important for me that we sit, we talk to each other, we eat great food. I think that, again, how you combine work and food, you know, there are people who need to go out and go for a walk to stop. There are people, you know, the idea of the business lunch where you go to a restaurant and you discuss work, which was an anathema to Renzo Piano, Richard's partner. He thought, I remember when they were doing the Pompidou, it was like either you ate or you worked. You never would, you know, combine the two, you know, the idea of enjoying a meal while you talked about work. Do you continue the work of a meal? or is it... Usually not. Normally we just talk about stuff we yeah. wouldn't talk about. Yeah. It's not worky over lunch. And um, everyone goes out for a walk after lunch because we're near Dulwich Park. Oh, that's right. So people go out, they wander off, they get a coffee, they have yeah. a little break. But normally, no, the conversation, either we're silent sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes we just need a break and we all sit there, we're happy in each other's company just eating. We, we're very happy to say nothing. Yeah. Or we just chit-chat about any old thing that's nothing to do with work. Or we invite people to lunch a lot of it's the nice. time. There are a lot of kids who want to see the studio who who might not otherwise experience what a studio is like. So we're busy, yeah. but we're always stopping for lunch. So we say, come to lunch. Yeah. So they nice. come, they get the vibe. Everyone's not panicking because they're not meant to be working. Mm-hmm. It's a you know a time for a break. And you, you, you're quite solitary? I love being on my own. I love reading. I always draw when I read. I write when I read. I draw, I have to underline. 
I can't read without a pen in my hand. I love it on my own, but I don't spend very much time on my own because mm. I have two children yeah. and I have eight people in my studio minimum. So I'm rarely on my own. So I really cherish it when I am. Because we were talking the other day about artists and alcohol and drinking and going out and being together in the evening because so many artists are alone during the day that then when it's sort of over, you want to kind of go out, be out. And did you have that period in your life before you had children you were working and then partying? To yeah, I mean, I think the time when I moved to London when I was a early teens... You know, it was magical. My boyfriend at the time was a... 16 is young. I was young. Well, your, your parents were fine with that. Not really. No. Yeah, I was kind of determined yeah. in what I wanted to do. And it was music. My boyfriend at the time was a record producer and a sound engineer. So I was with a lot of musicians mm. and I spent a lot of time in recording studios mm. just observing how music is made, how yeah. tracks are recorded, how music is edited... So that was a really formative time to, un to get under the skin of recording and music. And then when I was in Bristol, that was probably my most party time. That yeah. was my hallucinogenic moment. Yeah. Tell me about then when you left home. I was about 16 and I fell in love with a man who was 24. I did finish school, but I spent a lot of time in London. Was that a domestic situation? Did you live in a... A house and have to cook and shop for yourself or did no, you but we do you know we had hardly ever been to a restaurant mm. when we didn't go to restaurants ever we didn't have the money for kids mm. in a restaurant and restaurants in england at the time it wasn't the same thing what as it year is, now. is that we're we talking about well as i was growing up in the 70s and 80s we never went to a i can remember going to a restaurant once special occasion or i think it was because the car broke down and we went and it had red walls and the parmesan was off that's all <laughs> i remember about a restaurant yeah so the first time I really remember going to restaurants was when I was 16 and I met uh, my boyfriend and he would take me out in London to restaurants. Oh. And we went to Mr. Wing and we ate duck pancakes. It's in yeah. Earl's Court yeah. and, and Julie's restaurant. Julie's in Holland Park. In, in Holland. Yeah. Those were the restaurants. And I was like, wow, yeah. this is crazy. Yeah. You know? So you ate in restaurants and maybe cooked for yourself? or did Yeah, you then I did do a bit of cooking and I would have been at university when I got your book. But I didn't have any furniture. I had a, a wooden pallet on the floor and I put cushions around it and I would try and make the River Cafe re recipes. That was when I first got the Blue Book. And then you cooked your way through university? Did you stay there? Yeah, uh, yeah, and I did cook then. I would eat veggie burgers in the cafe. Were I you was, vegetarian at that I point? I wasn't, no, I just liked the veggie burgers. Mm. I wasn't vegetarian then. I would make chicken, I would do Thai dinners and I would get the galangal and lime and coconut milk and make chicken coconut milk soup. I would do that. So when you left Bristol, then what did you do? When I left Bristol, I had been writing, as you do. I was doing an English literature degree. So I was reading and writing, reading, reading, writing for three years. But I also wanted to paint. So I painted a lot. I painted my whole house, which was rented. And that yeah. kind of painting? No, I was painting murals. You painted murals. murals on the walls, did you? Yeah. Wow. And it was a rented apartment, and it had a shag pile carpet that I ripped off. Yeah. It was disgusting. It had carpet all over the side of the bath. So I took all the carpets away and painted on the floor great big murals and painted a lot of, I made a lot of things. Did your landlord ever stop by to visit? 
No, no but bit. I got in trouble when I left. I had to put it all. I had to get new shag pile carpet. Put it all back. <laughs> so underneath some person's yeah. apartment, you should go back there and lift up the carpet and be See like, you know, discovering a Michelangelo under under a canvas. You know, there's a nest devil hiding there. Have a look in uh, number one three five Cotton Brow or okay. one three nine. I can't remember. But um, so I wanted to make art then. Yeah, and I went to St Martin's. And I did the foundation course. Oh, so after university, you uh, went I to, did it all well, back to front. It's not bad to have one education and then have another. I wasn't ready to go to art school, yeah. although I'd always made art at school. Yeah. I wasn't ready to go to art school, not least because if you went to art school, you had to stay living at home. Yeah, and I wanted to move. Yeah. I wanted to live in Bristol. So, yeah, I went to St. Martin's and had the most, you know, yeah. rich year of just... I was I was a mature student by then. Everyone else was 18. Mm. I was 21 and quite old. So I did everything there, you know, really got into photography, printmaking, sculpture, made a lot of books. I sewed a book. I decided a book had to be made completely stitched. And then people kept saying to me, oh, you really should check out this theatre design course. At St. Martin's? There was a specific one called Motley Theatre Design Course, which was run by a 93-year-old lady called Percy Harris, who's a bit of a legend in the world of stage design. And I said, I don't really care about theatre, you know, it's quite boring. I never sit through, I'm always asleep, or it's a musical, it's kind of embarrassing. I don't want to do theatre. And they said, no, no, just go and check out this course. And I walked in, and it was this red room, smell of pot noodle, definitely saw a mouse. And where was it? It was in the scene dock of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. Okay. At the time, there was Miss Saigon, so every night you would hear the helicopter yeah. coming up, coming down. And it was just 10 students, pretty much feral, slightly smelly. They hadn't left that room for a year. Wow. They were just in. And they were making, they had little model theatres, they were listening to opera, there was references and, you know, photographs and paintings stuck all over the wall. And I felt, I thought, this is my tribe. This is your home. I'm happy here. Mm. And I've never really left that room in a way. Whatever I'm making, it's in a room. My room now is kind of like that. What is it like? It's covered in stuff, piles and piles of books, tons of little drawings and pictures all over the wall, lots of little sculptures, quite magical, lots of miniatures. You have a beautiful voice. Did you sing? Do you know, I did try and sing occasionally. I was so bad. Funny enough, I've, I've learned to use my voice a bit now. When I make sculptures, I speak in them. But tell, like, me about, tell me more about that. What do you mean? Well, there's a work that's on in Miami at the moment called Forest of Us, mm-hmm. and it starts as a small film with me talking, really just noticing the similarity between the shape of human lungs and the shape of trees, and just observing that. Then the film comes apart, and you walk into a sculpture that reverberates that observation. But when I first made these types of works in 2016, I would never have used my voice. Like a lot of people, if I heard my voice on an answering machine back in the day when we had answers, I'd be like, oh, God, I don't sound like that. That's weird. I sound, you know, that's terrible. But I got used to it when I used to read my children's stories when, they, when I put them to sleep. And I got used to the different quality of sound. If I had one of their heads on my chest, my voice sounded different. Mm-hmm. And I got used to that. And I kind of became comfortable with my own voice around then. Stories and voice and theatre and designing this story of your 
growing up decorating the cakes to going to Bristol and cooking Thai food and putting murals under carpets. It's all about discovery and trying to find the story with, with the theme underneath it. And then food is the same. You have the ingredients. You try and think how you can respect the ingredient, the simplicity of the ingredient. If you're vegetarian, if you're vegan, if you're trying to do something with or without. It always is that kind of restraint which then leads to the richness, doesn't it? I think so, and I think everything that you're just describing there is also about seeking a very basic human need for being participant Mm. in ritual. Yeah. And we were talking actually a little earlier about River Cafe and ritual, and you've got all the ingredients here for ritual. You have the river, you have the fire, you have that piazza of grass. Mm. And I think more and more it's what we lack and it's what we seek. The storytelling voice is yeah. another way of calibrating time. It's such a tiny fragment of our existence as a species that we calibrate time with a clock, mm. mechanical, digital. That's so recent. It was always calibration by means of planetary distance. And what is the right time? When Richard was doing Lloyd's, they wanted to put a clock on the outside of the building. We went to Jean Tangley and said, would you possibly design a clock? It was a real whole long story, which is you had to call him at a certain time of day. And somehow I was very involved in this. And so I made the call and you had to tell him right away what you wanted. And so I said, Mr. Tangley, we would, you know, this is Richard Rogers' wife and we'd like to put a clock on the outside of Lloyd's. And he went, that's fantastic. I love Richard Rogers' work. I love Lloyd's. I love insurance. I love clocks. This is a brilliant idea. And he thought about it. We talked about it. And then he said, there's, there's just one thing that if I design a clock for you, um, that's one condition. And I said, what would that be? And he said, the clock must not tell the correct time. Wonderful. And, you know, and uh, of course, Lloyd's went next, you know, they were totally, <laughs> but the idea that you could have a clock that you would, you knew as a you know, as a ritual, as a consistent, which which would not be correct, is okay. I'll meet you under the Lloyd's clock, but I don't know what time it, that will be. I, I think so. I th- I think these these other ways of calibrating time that are not digital. And I think one of the things I started doing, I was traveling a lot, too much for a while, and to sort of earth myself, I would every morning when I would wake up, I wouldn't quite know where I was straight away. I didn't know. And I would just observe the light coming through the gap in the two curtains. And for a while I'd just say, okay, I don't know anything else. I just know this line of light. And I started photographing them. And I've been doing it for about 20 years. And I now am in a state where in the morning, even if I wake up at home, I don't have curtains, I have blinds. So what you see are these two squares yeah, of light. Too. Yeah. Beautiful squares of light. And actually the door doesn't quite shut properly, so I often get a line of light through the door. And I just sit with those. I set my alarm 20 minutes before I have to get up. Which is what time? Normally I get up around 7.30, but I try to just have that moment with the lines of light, like a sort of, you know, the room is a sundial. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The River Cafe is excited to announce the return of our Italian Christmas gift boxes. Our alternative to the traditional hamper, the gift boxes bring you all of our favorites from the River Cafe kitchen, the vineyards, and the designers from all over Italy. They're available to pre-order now on shoptherivercafe.co.uk. Tell me about the most recent or most interesting set you've done, that you've worked on. If we, do we call them sets? Do you still call them sets? Oh, you might call them a stage sculpture. I mean, I think historically set design hierarchically... Yeah, tell me about set design. Well, it, it sometimes has been perhaps regarded as something decorative or something. So the only reason I am a little bit particular about the words I use to describe it is it just helps people to recognise that objects can be protagonists that environments can speak, that places speak, that, you know, a cup, if it's picked up in a particular way, under a particular light, can, you know, be vocal about stuff in the way that mountains can and rocks can and streams can, you know, um, and animals can. That's why I use stage sculptures a bit, just to kind of provoke mm. a little bit. But a recent one, there's one at the, on at the moment, actually, at the Gilgood Theatre for The Crucible, a book that we all, if you're, if you're American and you grew up in high school in America, we all read The Crucible. Tell me about The Crucible and the set. Well, when you enter the space, it was at the Olivier Theatre at the National and now it's at the Gilgood Theatre. When you enter the space, it already confronts you because it is a living box of water pouring. And in the Gilgood particularly, it's somewhat unnerving because the Gilgood is a beautiful, ornate, iced mm. cake of a proscenium edwardian theater so it makes you anxious straight away to see this water pouring like is there a giant leak but it's um pretty powerful and it already helps heighten the atmosphere you know there's always that terrible moment when you go in a theater and you've bought your popcorn or whatever you sit down the seats are uncomfortable you're with a friend you're not sure they're gonna like it they might find it boring because theater can be crap you know and crap theater is some of the crappiest Yeah, thing is. you can imagine because it's hard to do okay. well so if you sit down and you've got all those anxieties will it be good will it be bad will i be bored if already there's a gesture mm. that's confident that already says i'm going to look after you yeah i'll you're safe. Care. you're safe yeah, you're, you're safe. safe with me then it's a bit like a restaurant I it guess. is you, you walk in and the colors have been chosen people already relax and i think what happens is people become already tuned in a little bit to the vibration of the gesture are the sets usually lit then before you, when you sit down, you can see what, what it's going to be? Yeah. Is it dark going to light? And, well, it varies, but I'm trying to, I guess, 
increase the porosity between the feeling of walking into the turbine hall or, or the serpentine and the feeling of walking into the Gilgood Theatre. And I think if you walk in, there's already a sculpture there. Yeah. You engage in a different way. And then, of course, the music begins. And in this case, it's Caroline Shaw has done this extraordinary work with a, an extraordinary musical director as well. And these voices begin and they accost you. And you don't have time to worry anymore. You're, you're grabbed. Do you work with a director from the very first, when he starts or she starts thinking about how the play is going to be directed? Because I do that with a book. We don't write the recipes and then talk to the photographer and the graphic designer. We all sit around a table and think, what, what, is this, what is every page going to be? How are we going to photograph this before we even cook it? Or how are we going to make the page, re- make you want to cook a recipe and make it clear? So we, it all starts with that. And is that the way it is with you? Yeah, with Lindsay Turner, she's the director of The Crucible and she and I have worked together now for quite a long time, for 10 years actually. I spend quite a lot of time on a farm in Sussex and she came down there. You I, have a farm, you haven't told me that yet. <laughs> a little farm. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I only just got it, I haven't done much with it yet. I've ah, got big what ambitions. are you going to grow? What do you want to do? Um, well, we're this is a diversion from The Crucible, but well, you I, let that slip. My, my dream would be that the people in my studio who are on computers a lot of the time. I would really like it that on a Friday or maybe once a month or however often we can do it, they would come to the farm and put their hands in the earth. And it's just a visual symmetry as well. If These hands are on computer keys all the time yeah. and these imaginations are everywhere. But the nature of our practice is they're making models, but a lot of the time they're on computers. And I think it'd be beautiful for them to be hands in earth, you know, helping to grow the food that we then eat. That would be the, the dream. Yeah. yeah, that's the dream. So that's what we're great. It takes so, a long time. So you went to the farm with... So I went to the farm with Lindsay and we sat and we read The Crucible. Mm. And we just read the whole thing aloud. And that's what we always do, is we read it yeah. so that the play exists between us. We just share the parts so that before we start even... Before you even start, ...talking yeah. about it. Was it her idea to put it on? Was yeah. it her... She brought it to the yeah. National? She, yeah. had, she had the vision to do it, and she had a really clear vision for how she wanted to do it. But even after that first reading, we started to say, what if, what if the first scene was just this group of girls mm-hmm. sitting at the back of the congregation, muttering, and then one of them gets slapped, and we just see them from the back. Mm-hmm. So we sort of conjured the first scene, and that led to the environment and the sculpture... Mm-hmm around it would you direct yourself would you say i can do both yeah i sometimes do um especially with the music sometimes but i really like the collaboration with the director i direct the materials Mm. and the you know how they're like the video and the materials might coalesce and she directs the performers and the cast and it's a lot of directing of different material and human things do you go when your play is on do you go often to see it and have a set I, do I you go say a few goodbye times. once it's once yeah it's... i'm normally on to i'm normally on to the next thing but i i love to go back yeah you know especially towards the end towards the final night what was it like working with beyonce then from the crucible to beyonce or was it beyonce to the crucible well i've been working with her for a long time because mm-hmm. we started in um 2015 oh yeah That's a very big team. Lots of extraordinary collaborators over time, all over the world, and a massive production. And also with Abel Tesfe, The Weekend. So his stadium show was also happening at the same time. So there was one night where you could go and see 
Beyonce or The Weeknd or another play called Dear England, which is really fun. I'm going to see that on Monday, yeah. It's so fun. I really can't wait to see that. I tell you what's fun about that is it's a really divided audience. Mm. It's an audience who love theatre but might not always be so interested in football. It's an audience who really might not normally set foot in a theatre but love football, like my Mm. son who doesn't Mm. like theatre but Mm. likes football. So Ludo will come for that. And at the beginning, there's a little shiftiness, like, am I going to hate this? How's it going to be? And by the end... Yeah, no, every, I've, everyone is crying and singing yeah. Sweet Caroline together. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a bit like we've been talking a little bit about national assemblies mm. and how they might form a new kind of form of governance and new ways to participate in democracy. Mm. And actually, at the end of that, it gives you hope that actually, given the right stimulus mm. and the right materials and environment people can find common ground. When in the pandemic, when we closed the River Cafe, if you'd asked me what's important in the city, I would have said, you have theater, concerts, parks, playgrounds, hospitals, you know, but restaurants way down. But you realize that going to, to see what you're just describing or to come perhaps to a restaurant and see people you might not have seen for years that you bump into or that you again the thing of being taken care of that you can walk in and feel that you know it's going to be okay you might have had an argument or been stuck in traffic or lost your job or getting divorced or getting married or you know happy things are saved up for months to come but that somehow when you what you want and I think what I want both of us is to have somebody walk through the door and feel it's going to be okay and leave feeling better than when they arrived. I think so. And I think it comes back to ritual and the passing of time. Mm. Because if you've been working intensely and you walk into a restaurant Mm. and you know that there's going to be a new rhythm to the rest of that day, Mm -hmm. first it's going to be the ritual, the welcome, the formalities, the choosing, the glass of whatever you're going to drink, the course one, the Mm. course two. This is a clock Mm. in itself. The same when you go to the theatre. And actually now... After having become temporarily extinct, all of my practice was temporarily extinct. Me and Jack, we both have devoted our lives to mass gatherings. Yeah. And suddenly mass gatherings were weapons of mass destruction. What did you do? Panicked. No. Talked a lot on Zoom. Mm. Became a radio station. (laughs) Would have been better to shut up and go off and do a sabbatical, but didn't. But we didn't know. I spent every day, Jack looked at me, he said, Ez, you're like a mad sort of ringleader doing Zooms, he said, just leave your people alone. They're happy to have some time off. But somehow the contact was so important, wasn't it? Well, I felt it was. Well, how we feel now, like the other day going to the weekend's concert where it's 80,000, no screens, 80,000 people singing together, one five foot eight man holding 80,000 people in a stadium. We look, we're pinching ourselves. Just thinking a few years ago, this felt like it would never happen again. And for me, it's it's so vital. Um, it's one of the most important things we do, I think, being, as humans. Being together. Yeah. Oh, well, let's talk about this book. Urgent. Yeah, let's Urgent. definitely talk about this book. I want you to describe this okay. to people who are listening about what we have at the table between you and myself. So what's sitting in between me and Ruthie right now is a book. It's a small 22-centimeter square by about... I'm going to say about eight centimeters thick. So it's a chunky object and it's got a hole cut out of the front. And then in the following pages are more offset holes. 
and around the holes are drawn the names of everyone who's ever participated in any of the collaborative works that I've made over time. Then, as you unfold its thousand pages, there are 700 images, mainly of a sort of parallel series of works that I've been making for 30 years. Small paper sculptures, paintings, drawings, and then finally by the end, there's 50,000 words in it as well of text, of commentary. And then by the end, there are pictures of most, of about 120 projects. So it's like doing a big end of year tax return. How long did it take (laughs) you to do this? I started it seven years ago. And then my first deadline was four years ago. So I've been missing deadlines really But we have four extra extra years of work that's in it. This is a very good way of putting it. I think you should say that had you stopped four years ago, the book might have stopped without a lot of beautiful work. This is true. Yeah, And it's available in your local bookstore? It is. Available at all good bookstores. Or online. Yeah, and Amazon, it's number one bestseller. Number one bestseller. In Artist Monograph. And it's published by Thames and Hudson. And it's a beautiful, beautiful object. It's a beautiful book. And it's showing beautiful work. So... You know, on to the next one. If we um, go back, as we like ritual, tradition, and consistency, if we think about food, it's a question that I always ask at the end of what has today been a wonderful conversation. Food is what we have when we're hungry, when we're tired, when, as you say, you need protein, when you need energy, when you want to feed your children or be fed. It's also comfort. What would be a food you might go to for comfort? It is my cheese and tomatoes on toast. Yeah, it's what the, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. mainly tomatoes and red peppers, mm. and with a bit of cheese on top. Okay. And you know, some really good olive oil, some salt and pepper. Make two slices of it. Just bake it. Yeah, and then maybe a little glass of wine with that. Ah, That's see, we're going to yeah. the wine and yeah. the cheese and yeah. the tomatoes. That sounds like a very, very comforting meal. Thank you for today. Thank, Thank you for you being so my much. friend. Thank you. Thank you. If you like listening to Ruthie's Table 4, would you please make sure to rate and review the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers. It's produced by Willem Malinsky. Our executive producers are Zad Rogers and Faye Stewart. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore. Special thanks to everyone at the River Cafe. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 